0: Hello, and welcome to episode three of Living Value. It's a podcast about living your best life and making the world a better place by living in a way that brings value to yourself and others. I'm Topher Field, and on this podcast, I interview people who I believe are true examples of living value. People who create value in three key areas, in business and finances, in relationships and community, and in the area of ideas. Now, if you're enjoying this series so far, and you're enjoying what I'm doing with this podcast, then please head to tophrafield.locals.com and join my community of supporters. Locals.com is is like Patreon, but without the political correctness and the deplatforming and all that other nonsense. So that's where you'll find a community, a small community of people who make this podcast, and in fact, everything that I do on my blog and in my videos possible. So please check it out at TofraField.Locals.com and become a supporter so I can keep making this kind of content. Today's guest is Jeffrey Tucker, and I am super excited that he has agreed to come on the podcast. He doesn't know me, but he's a very generous man with his time and with his knowledge, and he's great fun to talk to, and today's chat is super, super fun. But I do have a confession to make. He's, well, I'm just going to say it. He's an economist. No, wait, wait, don't switch off. He's an interesting economist, I promise. He's also a fantastic author of many books. My favorite is titled, The Market Loves You and Why You Should Love It Back. And he's the editorial director of the American Institute for Economic Research. I've invited him on this podcast because we at the Living Value Podcast are all about value all about creating more value than we consume in life. And creating economic value is a core part of that ethos, along with creating value in community and value in ideas. Now, Jeffrey Tucker is a man who has spent his life developing and understanding ideas around economics, which is literally ideas around value. And he's going to be sharing his wisdom with us today. And Jeffrey Tucker, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for coming on. I am very, very excited. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you've come to Australia a few times. You've been a part of the the Libertarian Conference in Australia. We we may or may not get to that a little bit later, but I just want my, my listeners to know you are a big fan of Australia, are you
1: not? Oh, sure, 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 sure. So I've been to Melbourne, I think, three times, you know, twice for like a financial conference and then one time for sort of a libertarian-oriented thing. And then um, Brisbane, I spent some time in Brisbane... And then I came to Sydney uh, once. So, yeah, I've kind of been been out and about in Australia. I've never been to Western Australia, but uh, uh, but yeah. So I and and I've I fell in love with the culture and and everything about Australia. I just absolutely adore. Mm. Um, it's I, history is just everything. And I, you know, I watch I watch Australian shows on television. You know, <laughs> I like I like Australian stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, it's certainly
0: been good to have you, and I've uh, had the pleasure of crossing paths with you a couple of times, but that is not the purpose of the podcast. What I want to talk to you about here, and this podcast is really all about value, And we talk about value in these three key areas that I say over and over again, which are value in the area of finances and business, value Mm. in the area of family and community, and value Mm. in the area of ideas. And you're an economist, and a lot of people sort of, they switch off when you say, oh, we're going to hear from an economist. I'm going to interview an economist. Oh, dear. Uh, This is is going to be some esoteric thing that just isn't really relevant to real life. So I want to kick off with a very open question for you. Why does what happens in the economy matter to ordinary people. What is the economy?
1: Um, yes, yeah, so the economy is people. And that's I think uh, actually the very first thing that economists them- themselves tend to forget actually. <laughs> <laughs> that there's no such thing as as an economy without people, uh, an economy without people's exchanges, without relationships and social cooperation and friendship and love all these things are part of economic life and uh, uh and and it's the most human of all the sciences and and the and the last one to develop really uh, you know in the ancient world there was absolutely no sense of that economics had a that it was a separate kind of discipline right it can it had within it laws that were discoverable and applicable to Human, human life, the ancients didn't know anything about it. And economics as a discipline was more or less discovered in the high Middle Ages, actually. But once we started seeing more complicated um, economic structures, the invention, you know, money was being distributed to the middle class when people started to be able to move around and prices became sophisticated when you started seeing banking institutions and these sorts of things, then people began to think, you know, maybe there is a, a science that's discoverable here um, certain laws that were governed, the way we interact with each other, the constraints uh, within those interactions, the opportunities afforded by social cooperation uh, within the matrix of exchange, and lots of opportunities for making mistakes and uh, for mm-hmm. correcting those mistakes so um, and then, as it turns out once so once. The science of economics was was discovered. It became really important to figure out things like where does wealth come from? Why is it that people are getting richer? How come uh, the poor didn't weren't able to weren't able to get health care and clothing and food in the past, but mm-hmm. now they are getting it so now you this cries out for an explanation you know where does wealth come from how what kind of institutions can we have to better enable uh, more social mobility uh, longer lives? where are we going to get the food and the housing to support a rising population? And so on, these are really important questions. And I think it's a tremendous error for people to neglect them and dismiss economics as if it's just a technocratic field of mumbo jumbo, which honestly a lot of times it is, you know, uh, <laughs> it shouldn't be, it, sh- it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be. We should speak about economics uh, as as a genuine human science that. It helps uh, understand the ennoblement of humanity.
0: Let me, let me jump in here because you've actually already touched on a number of things that I do want to get to. Where does wealth come from, etc.? But you used a particular expression that I would love you to elaborate on. You said at one point there, a year, during the high Middle Ages, prices became more sophisticated. Now, price is something that most of us view in a negative sort of sense. We, we tend to, if we're thinking about price at all, it tends to be because the price of something is too high. We don't really want to pay that price. What do you mean by a sophisticated price and what function does
1: price actually fulfill? What's the, what's the good thing about a price? You know, pr- prices lead to better coordinated action and, and, and enable uh, better uh, planning and use of resources, right? So for prices... Is, is accurate it can it can serve as a kind of a sign or a symbol or a signal uh, to, to tell you what to do whether we should uh, consume more of something or conserve that thing um, it can be a constraint on our behavior and in a very important way so we mm-hmm. don't waste resources uh, but uh, but don't forget too when i say that prices became more sophisticated so there were three kinds of prices that emerged in the high middle ages that um, had not been entirely known in the mainstream by by everybody in the past. I mean, one would be, for example, wages. Okay, so mm. workers began to work for wages. This is quite liberating because instead of just getting security and a patch of vegetables uh, to, to work on on your land on for, for the lord, uh, you know, and and of uh, your feudal feudal lands. The, you wouldn't earn money under those conditions. All you get is uh, the right to live there and and mm. to, to scratch around in the dirt. And then the promise that the Lord will uh, kill enemies if they start to raid the place. So now with the advent of, of sophisticated economic institutions, you get paid in money. Mm. Now that's amazing, right? Cause now you've, <laughs> now, now you've got a choice, right? You can say, well, maybe I don't want to eat vegetables. I want to go down the market, and buy fish mm. or, or maybe I'm going to uh, save up my money and move to somewhere else that I would rather live. So wages were a, a really wonderful innovation, you know, like an empowering thing. It really m- made workers; it gave gave workers a uh, a way to participate more fully in and social cultural life. And then the second one was 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 interest rates, the associated with banking institutions, and and those became a very important sort of Signal about the availability of credit and enabled people to act in ways that can lengthen their time horizons mm-hmm. and then um, and then oh, and then in addition to that, you had uh, the development of sophisticated capital markets in which people would trade ownership units of of stock corporations you know and mm-hmm. so th- and so that itself becomes a A a way by which you begin to value, um, put put value on things, and and to and to democratize valuation uh, that way. So it's not just people get dictating from above, but Mm. but everybody participating in economic life. So now all of these forces combine together. You know, interest and wages and and uh, financial financial markets that are that are growing. Uh, with regular retail prices on the street and wholesale prices, you know, once you get sort of an extended order of of production. And and then you get this really, really important thing, which is double entry uh, accounting, where you can discern profits. And Mm -hmm. that is a really important thing, because once you can discover the difference between profit and loss, you can discern the difference between successful and unsuccessful um, enterprises. And, and, and then you get real rationality and a tremendous opportunity for wealth creation. And, and that, you know, the, the discovery of the calculation of profits becomes an extremely important signal to, to help everybody engage in more economically successful behavior that, that creates wealth for all.
0: Now, in the, the Democratic primary that we've just seen play out in the United States, there were a number of runners in there who, as best as I could tell, looking from the other side of the planet, would view mm. profit as a dirty word. They would view profit as a problem. And if there was a company making a lot of profit, that was somehow proof that they were doing something wrong. So where does profit come from? And you, you talked about it just then as though it's a good thing. It's an indicator of success. What is a company being successful at if it is turning a profit?
1: If it's turning a profit, it's being successful. Presumably, it's not on the government payroll, <laughs> uh, getting subsidies. But it, what it means is it's 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 succeeding and it's search for excellence and service of the community. That's all it means. It means that they're they're doing a good job at not wasting and serving other people. That's mm. what enterprises are supposed to do. And I would submit that that profits are better than losses, mm-hmm. um, and that you're either profiting or, or, or you're losing and there's nothing else. So uh, and there's really no other, no other way to look at it. I mean, you can't, you can't get rid of the price system and, and you, want, you want profits. So, yeah, I, I don't understand this idea that it's a dirty word. I mean, it's, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, you know, we all seek to profit in everything we do in our lives. You know, but this part of what economics does. Is it studies uh, human choice, you know so the people who this is absolutely true that the people who right now are listening to this podcast could be doing something else mm-hmm. and 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 the cost of what of of their behavior that the are listening right now is the 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 next choice that they would have been doing had they not been listening mm,
0: the opportunity so that's cost. that's
1: that's the opportunity cost and so what you what you want is to gain an insight from what i'm saying that exceeds, at least in a subjective psychological sense, the the the, the opportunity cost that you're paying to listen to it, mm. and in which case you would say that it was a profitable uh, activity on my part. So, you know, it doesn't have to be monetary profit. We all we all seek to better our lot. We all want to live a better life, not just over our lifespan, not just over this year, mm. but every minute of the day. We're all every one of our actions is designed to trade in a less desirable state of affairs for a more desirable state mm. of affairs. That's, that's, what, that's what economic action, that's what human choice and human life is all about. So there are people though that have
0: tried to abolish the idea of profit. We saw that in the Soviet Union after the communist revolution. We, we see that in Maduro's uh, Venezuela where profit is very much re- regarded as a, as a dirty concept. We, we see that I would argue in North Korea. Um, and yet we don't see that in China anymore. That, that was a part of the Chinese system, and then they reformed uh, and, and changed. What, what is the impact of people who try and control prices, do away with profit? What, what is the consequence of, I guess, defying the laws of economics? What happens right. when you try and well, do that? You,
1: you, well, you get a complete chaos, and, and you don't know what to do anymore. You don't know what should be conserved and what should be uh, produced. So there's no other signal you can you have access to to understand what it is the community desires and how much of the resources are available to make it or even the processes that are necessary to, to make those because you don't have uh, prices for inputs either. And once you do that, you just unleash a kind of economic chaos, which is exactly what we saw in the Soviet Union in the early days. In fact, you know, Lenin, when he first got in control, you know, so, you know, to tried to get rid of money and prices and everything entirely and the whole place uh, began to starve. So you know, by 1921, he actually, yeah, this was a very short period. They call it war communism. By 1921, he actually, with the new so-called new economic policy, introduced markets again, mm-hmm. and into Russia and saved the place. Um, at under Stalinism, yeah, they was gonna, gonna a crackdown. But then after Stalin, Khrushchev um, tr- tried to reintroduce prices himself. Now his attempt was interesting because he didn't want to. He tried to come up with a price system that didn't take recourse to supply and demand, which he regarded as being a bourgeois uh, mm-hmm. construct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that didn't quite work because computers aren't very sophisticated, and you can't just assign mm-hmm. a bunch of uh, commissars to make up prices, you know, fake prices. They have mm-hmm. to be real prices, market prices. So that's that has never, never worked before. A, a world without prices is grotesquely irrational. What you end up doing is. Substituting the choices and freedoms of the people uh f- with uh you displace those choices and freedom of the people and you just place them in favor of dictatorship and mm-hmm. and bureaucracies and, and the police state. Those are really the only two mm-hmm. things. Central planning. Yeah, so, central
0: planning. Is is it fair to describe modern day China just so that people can begin to wrap their heads around these different ideas, as being more of a Leninist version of communism?
1: Um you mean under the new economic policy? Yes. Yeah, I would. but well, that's a very strange way to put it. But yeah, I would say it's, it's. Well, how would you put it then? Well, I would just say that that. Uh, my understanding of China is that it's, you know, it's a complete one party dictatorship with with a relatively liberal um, economic life. OK. Um, and, and you know, it's liberal in funny ways that you wouldn't expect. Um despite well, I don't want to go to that yet, just yet, but I will say this. The so one of the problems of the American and Australian system is that we are burdened extremely heavily with uh with with um litigation, right? So lawyers are suing for everything all the time. And um and no I mean this is it's it's a major problem. I mean I was just talking to a friend of mine about the about the US. I mean there's there's no laws, in, for example, in the US that um, that it's illegal to pass on a cold or a, or a flu, mm, right? There's mm, no laws that says you can't do that. But but these days, everybody is terrified even to open up their businesses right now because they're afraid of litigation in light of uh, COVID there. And yeah. right, it's probably the same thing in Australia. You've got a major problem with lawyers running around suing everybody for everything. And people are getting in trouble co- constantly for all sorts of things. Like in here in Massachusetts, we have, an ostensibly free uh, free market in the labor, unlike Australia, right where you can 't mm-hmm. actually fire people but mm-hmm. but you can here in the u s or fire anybody in China, eh, but just one problem: they can sue you and they can sue you for this 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 because they thirty different reasons they can sue you mm-hmm. and and that discourages a free market in labor actually so so anyway, my point is that like there 's weird ways in which the china, china china's economic system is Less burdened down by regulation mm. and litigation, and 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 the and the fear of lawyers, and and there's there's more freedom of action because uh, there's fewer um, legal liabilities associated. I mean, in a bad sense, like bad legal liabilities. So, mm. so, so that's early stage capitalism, I would say. Early stage capitalism, although, you know, I mean that that early stage capitalism, I say, we, we began in the 1980s. But my God, you know. Um, uh, once you adjust for purchasing purchasing power to parity, China's already bigger than the the U.S. in GDP. Mm. But, But even if you don't make that adjustment, it will outstrip the U.S. certainly within the next 10 years.
0: And I think that's a, that's a really interesting illustration of, of the power of bringing in free markets. We had this country that had a massive population that did not have free markets. They brought in a much more liberal market system and literally within, within 30, 40 years have become, if not the wealthiest, then one of the wealthiest countries uh, on the face of the planet. I, I mm. wanna talk about where wealth comes from in just a second, but I wanna come back to something you said earlier about the chaos that comes from a lack of price signals. My wife and I were in Caracas in Venezuela in 2014. Mm. It was fascinating to see the government there had declared certain things to be essential, uh, things like bottled water, and they had declared what the price of those should be in order to ensure that they would be affordable to the common Venezuelan person. So there was a long list of things that had fixed prices by the government. What was fascinating as we walked around in Caracas, we were there for one of my friend's weddings, was that those things that had the government mandated price, you could not find anywhere. Hmm. You just couldn't get them. And the simple reason was the government mandated price was below cost. The government Hmm. had set an incorrect price where the shopkeepers looked at it and said, well, I could restock that shelf full of bottled water, but I would lose money on every single bottle that I sold. Because yeah. the government had not factored in the, the hyperinflation of its own currency and the fact that you, people just could not restock and yeah. then turn a profit on these, on these goods. That's the kind of thing that you're talking about, I, I guess, when you talk about the
1: chaos of taking away the price signal. No, yeah, the- You create, create massive shortages or massive surpluses if you get it wrong. And mm. the only way to get it right is by letting it be determined by supply and demand. I mean, that's, mm. what, that's what Khrushchev gradually gradually learned over the course of his tenure. Mm. And, you know, he was ultimately overthrown because, for, for being too liberal. Mm, mm.
0: Well, my wife and I, um, we just spent our time drinking Gatorade because you could buy a full-sized 600ml bottle of Gatorade for, uh, I believe it worked out to be 17 US cents. Uh, a, a mere fraction of the American price, let alone the Australian price. Uh, and that was the free market at work. We could get those for 17 cents, but you could not get a bottle of water for love nor money because the government had said that it was only worth 5 cents when in fact it actually cost them uh, more than that. Anyway, that's just an anecdote to illustrate that this, this is real world stuff. It does have an impact uh, in, the, in the real world. But I want to come back to what you said right at the very outset and that is where does wealth come from? One of the things that blows my mind is that in the last, let's say 100 years, but I'm I'm generalizing and these these are not specific numbers, I don't have the data in front of me, the world's population has exploded. We have more than well and truly more than doubled the world's population and yet at the same time average wealth has increased. Average wealth across those people has increased. Now, There are people who are of the view that when one person gets richer, another must get poorer. There is a finite amount of wealth, and when one person benefits, another person has to lose. But surely what we've seen invalidates that argument. So how is it possible to have more people and, on average, for those people to be wealthier at the same time? Where did
1: that come from? This is the right question, and it's an already... You know, we've overcome a tr- tremendous sort of intellectual deficit just for, for the fact that we're asking it. You know, um, Aristotle was asked this, asked this question, and I think it was in his, his book, Ethics. Where does wealth come from? And he, th- he said, well, I think the question is actually, how do, you, how do you get wealthy? And his answer was just very simply. He said, uh, there's no new wealth in the world. So if you want to get wealthy, you have to steal it. Mm. And so you have to invade another uh, wealthy mm-hmm. community and take all their stuff and bring it back. And he so said, "That's how you—that's where wealth comes from." And of course, we learn from mm-hmm. the High Middle Ages on, and you know, dramatically, uh, that that wasn't true. Wealth comes from somewhere. So there's a number of different answers to this. I'm—I'm I'm still very happy with with Adam Smith's answer because he. His great book, Wealth of Nations, you know, um, seizes on this. He jumps at it right right at the outside of the book, really, I think, in Chapter 2. He says wealth comes from one thing, uh, the division of labor. Now, that's a funny phrase, maybe, Mm. but what he really means is the more people that you can cooperate with on a single task, the more inclusive the markets are of more hands, more minds, more people doing things that are specialized, uh, the more wealth you get. And you can demonstrate this uh, mathematically, you know, uh, that the division of labor does enhance your own productivity. You can reflect on it in your own life. Really, if you have a job um, and you're spending all your time doing sort of everything, um, then you can hire a person to do uh, one of those things. And you suddenly you discover you're a lot, a lot more productive at, at, at doing the other remaining tasks you have. Mm. And, and the more you can do this, uh, cooperate with other people, uh, in the division of labor, the wealthier you will get. And if you expand that system out more and more and more to the whole country and really to the whole world, then you see, uh, you see wealth really just take off. And that was Adam Smith's answer, and I think it's a, really a brilliant answer. I think it's really good. Now, uh, uh, a slightly deeper, more sophisticated analysis of this comes from the great economist Deirdre McCloskey, who wrote a three-volume trilogy um, on uh, called the bourgeois series bourgeois ethics bourgeois bourgeois virtues yeah, uh, and and in these three books, she comes up with a theory really that the source of wealth uh really is the ideas that we hold about about culture and and that that was the big transformation in the world, from something like um the eighteenth century the middle late eighteenth century up to the modern times is that that we began to uh, have a different attitude towards wealth. We began to celebrate uh, commerce, c- creativity, mm-hmm. respect uh, property rights, uh, revere uh, success in the market, cheer on uh, innovation, um, reward hard work and, and honesty. And that, th- that all these virtues are the basis of wealth creation. Because if you don't do that, you're gonna gradually destroy the cap- capability of society to mm-hmm. create wealth. And so I think this is what you have going on um, in places like South Korea and, and, and China and, and Vietnam uh, today and Taiwan and so on is you have cultures that are, that are overwhelmingly adoring of, of enterprise, hard work, creativity, and, you know, hustle, for lack of a mm, better, mm. and, and respectful and celebratory of, of wealth and accumulation. And, and you can feel it in these countries. It's really quite something. Now It is
0: very, it is very different in different countries, and this is one of mm-hmm. the, the unfortunate things about Australian culture, is we have what we almost proudly refer to as tall poppy syndrome. Uh, and the mm-hmm. idea being if you have a field of poppies and you run a mower over the top, the tall poppy is the one that's going to get get cut, the one that's, that's at the highest. Yeah. And so we have this cultural cringe where when someone is successful, we actually try and drag them down. We try and cut down the tall poppies which yeah. I think works against what you're talking about. But, but the time that I've spent in the US and the time that I've spent in a few other countries has almost been refreshing because you're, you're absolutely right. In the US, when someone comes along and says, hey, I've got this idea, I want to do this thing. Other people around them go, okay, yeah, you go, you have a crack at that, see what happens. You yeah, okay. know, Australia, that's you're much more likely to get, oh yeah, well, you, know, you think you're special. You think you're going to be able to, you know, you know, I tried that once and didn't work. It's not going to work for you. That's, that's more what we get here in Australia, which I think is really unfortunate because as you say, this is where wealth comes from.
1: Yeah, you know, and unfortunately, I think that might be tra- changing in the U.S. a little bit, uh, because I think what you just described is the traditional American way. In fact, that's really what we specialize in. But but that's that's less true with the younger generation, where you get this kind of culture of complaint all the time. Oh, I'd, I'm not being treated fairly. Things are too unequal. Um, people are microaggressing against me. There's mm. institutional. Racism that's disabling me, and so on and so on and so on. This over politicization of of people under thirty, which I think might be less true in Australia. But I I think what you just described is true because I think I think you have you know so what probably like a a couple of dozen um, very famous, extremely wealthy people in Australia, and they're always being hated on by yes. everybody all the time. Yes, absolutely. You know?
0: <laughs> um, no, it, it is a bit of an issue here in Australia. I would love to, to see it change, but uh, at the moment I, I'm, not, I'm not seeing any signs that it's, that it's about to. I want to jump back to the division of labour because I think there is a, just a huge truth there. And it actually rings very true. I'm in the middle of reading, um, Henry Ford's autobiography, my life and work. Mm. I've actually got a genuine, an original 1924 print, uh, the very first Australian edition of that book, um, which has a whole bunch of hilarious printing errors in it. The guy who did the typesetting, uh, didn't know his job very well. Um, however, putting that aside, it's been a very, very illuminating book. And one of the things that just comes through crystal clear is he just goes through his method and, and what he did and how he built the company. The the significance of being able to build a car that consumed fewer resources, it required less metal, less timber, less precision work, and required fewer hours. In many cases, many of the operations in terms of building the car required only about sort of one third of the number of man hours that it had required under previous previous builders. And as a result, he all of a sudden was able to sell cars to people who previously could never have afforded them. And make a massive profit at the same time. Now, what, what strikes me about that is both the division of labor, because that's the method by which he reduced the hours involved, but also the inherent, um, the inherent drive for efficiency that comes with the profit motive. Doing more with less. Is there almost an
1: environmentalism built into that? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, that's exactly right. Like, this is why environmentalism and and capitalism uh, really go well together because both are trying to figure out ways to conserve resources in a, in a wise way and create sustainable processes and better outcomes, you know, and, mm. and the capitalism uh, specializes in that, or at least market economics, you know, the, the division of labor specializes in that it's, it's all about uh, conservation. So you can, you want to do with more with less and the of labor absolutely allows that, you know, the, I I kind of regret this term division of labor because it sounds too, um, in a sense, too clinical. But another way to regard it is to say that the division of labor observes that every person can be valuable to other people in some way. Mm. So so that's a really important insight because I think we're too tempted to, I think it's too tempting to think that um, you, you know, that, that, that all good in society comes from only the most intelligent, most talented people. That's not true. Uh, everybody in a market economy is included and everybody is extremely valuable in some respects. And we can't always anticipate you know, what that is, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I might, I might be very, very good, which I actually happen to be at uh, at, at, at cleaning. I'm really, kind of good. <laughs> I'm really good because my first job was a, uh, was cleaning uh, a department store, you know, and so I right. clean all the restrooms and I clean all the, um, the, the, the rooms and, you know, and I was I really, really got very good at it and I d- d- developed a real enthusiasm for it. But, but if I spent all my time, doing that here at the house I live in. We have 40 rooms, right? Mm. And I, I wouldn't be able to do anything else, you know? Mm. So it's not in my interest to, to do that. And it's interesting when you think about your own, your own life, anybody listening, there's funny ways in which you're valuable to others and, and ways in which you wouldn't entirely expect, actually. You know, it takes a little little while to figure out exactly what that is. You have to have a, a robust, active, dynamic market environment, mm. and be willing to adapt your skills. It's one of the problems I think we have now that people train for for things uh, and think they have to do that thing that they have a degree in. Yeah, you know, and it's not really true. You just got to figure out what's what you're good at and do that. Well, it is
0: interesting that that perception I think is shifting. Um, I think that was very much ingrained from the '50s through to probably the 2000s and early 2010s, but the last ten years have certainly. Um, smashed a lot of that preconception here in Australia, I can't speak for elsewhere in the world, where we've seen so many industries becoming obsolete, jobs drying up in so many different industries. And I think it's now been widely accepted by a lot of people that you are going to have two, three, maybe four different careers. Uh, Assuming you even pursue a career in the first place, you were going to have to adapt and change two or three different times over the course of your life as the world changes around you. Concurrent with that, we've seen the rise of the gig economy these people who, who don't necessarily have a trained skill or profession, but they will pick up whatever work they can find in within whatever areas that they, that they can do on a job, quite a literal a job by job basis. And we're seeing, I think a huge amount of flexibility coming into the marketplace um, through all of that. But coming back again to what you've just said about, about there's a place for everybody. I think this is a really, really important thing. And, and funnily enough, it actually comes out in Henry Ford's book as well, because he talks about the fact that prior to him, the only people who could build cars were artisans. They were they were the, the skilled workers who could hand shape these various shapes, etc. Okay. When he divided that labor up down to the point that all someone had to do was put a piece of metal under a, a drill press and pull the handle on the drill press and then put the piece of metal on the other side. That's all that person had to do. All of a sudden, he actually began specifically employing disabled people, people who were in wheelchairs and had various other physical ailments that actually ruled them out of a huge number of jobs. And he was actually able to give them a place in his factory and pay them the same as what he would have paid an able-bodied
1: person. And that was in itself quite a revolution at the time. You know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of the novelist Ayn Rand. I think she makes capitalism to a great heroic enterprise. But one of the problems that you, that you get from the messaging of her books is this perception that the only heroes are the big captains of industry. Mm. And that is just not true. I mean, everybody in a market economy is super valuable to everybody else. And what you said about the disabled, you know, it's really important. It's funny because I was just thinking about... Um, Again, going back to my first job, which you kind of caused me to remember, hmm. I worked alongside a, a nice young uh, disabled uh, boy. I mean, he, he was like one of my best friends. Actually, was, we loved uh, cleaning together. But he uh, kind of had that job as almost a charity thing. And um, hmm. uh, but he had to, but he was still earning the minimum wage. And then, when the minimum wage went up, he was really happy because he thought he was going to get more money. But unfortunately, he had to be let go because the department store was facing tightened profit margins, and they were thin profit margins anyway. Mm. And they had to cut cut corners. So he was he was let go of his job. I and mean, he was fired uh, mm. uh, because of that. You know. And so this is a problem with these kinds of regulations and these rules and these strictures when you, you know we talked about prices earlier wages wage is the price so they mm. you set that set that too high uh what you're doing is cutting a whole bunch of people out of the market and making them less able to participate in the division of labor which i consider to be immoral and and quite cruel
0: mm. Very true. And that ties into, I guess, the flip side of creating value. Uh, And and I wholeheartedly agree, every single person in a market economy has value and can be valuable to others. We just need to find the right place. Uh, they, They primarily need to find the right place. But obviously, we need to help each other to find the place where we can bring the most value to each other. But we've kind of created a world where people are able to be rewarded without bringing value and and we see that in multi-generational welfare dependency and and these sorts of things and it it almost seems to be contagious if your parents were were dependent on welfare for their entire lives then you end up much more likely to be the same uh, with or without physical ailments or disabilities that might uh, that, that might make your situation more or less difficult. There just seems to be, there, there is almost a career choice in not producing value these days. What does that do? And, and talk, I guess, without wanting to use too much jargon, the welfare trap and, and how that kind of works and how that sends signals that maybe have perverse outcomes.
1: Nobody's really figured out how to provide a state-based welfare without disincentivizing people from participating in economic life at the same time. Um, I mean, Australia's got this gigantic problem right now with all these COVID payments that they've been mm. pushing out you know, for months and months and months, and nobody knows exactly how to stop it or win or who's mm-hmm. going to pay for it and how. I mean, it's going it's, it's, its from a financial point of view, this is a disaster for states all over all over the world. But um, the welfare state uh, is not a very rational thing, it, you know, just to throw money around as if as if that, you know. Uh, Is the whole of uh, discharges the whole of our moral obligations to the poor uh, is ridiculous? You know, I mean that you know you you can get money, but you're not getting dignity Mm. that you get with work. Uh, You might be able to pay rent, but you're not learning to value yourself through uh, being engaged in enterprise, a cooperative work and friendship and love with Mm. other people. That that it doesn't work and. And I, I know in the American case, you know, we didn't even have a welfare state in the 19th century, obviously. Um, but instead, we had a huge amount of private charity uh, going on. That's actually quite rational. You know, like mm. you take people in a, in a bad way and you help them get back on their feet and um, keep them safe and get them trained and get them out there working. And we had really huge, robust institutions dealing with widows and orphans and poor people and immigrants. And, and it was all wonderful. Um, but by the time you get into uh, the 19-teens, you started seeing these welfare programs coming along, and then you had the income taxes and you had the regulations mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And then within 50 years or something, uh, these huge, gigantic uh, ch- charitable organizations have already been plowed under. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, their big donors have been overtaxed, and, and they had been displaced by, by overly generous public benefits th- that don't actually help people. Uh, don't actually deal with their individual problems, they just throw money at them. Mm. So it was a very cruel kind of displacement that uh, took place in the US. And I, I bet the same thing, the same story could be told about Australia
0: very very much so and and one of the things that people forget when they look back on those benevolent institutions is they forget to adjust their expectations for the time they look at for example the houses for the poor in that day and they say oh but they were squalid living conditions and they were all crammed together and they were this and they were that well yes everyone was living in squalid conditions by comparison to what we expect today that literally was uh, the the actual economic standard of the time and it's a measure of how much wealth we've created since then that our expectations have have really changed so much so uh, no there there is an issue and it's a double-edged sword really in the sense that on the one hand we have the minimum wages that you've mentioned that keep some people out of the workforce because they're not actually able to find a job at a price that they are worth where they generate more value than than what they cost but secondly isn't it true that as people start to earn money these uh, welfare payments start to diminish and that actually means they're
1: earning now even less oh we're in that trap right now i mean it's a serious problem because you have to be rules associated with welfare right you can't just Mm -hmm. give a a, same check to everybody so so yeah everything's calibrated according to uh you know if you if you take a job then you lose your payments uh the more money you make the less uh, money you get and Mm -hmm. so at at that tipping point there's always a a a question like why, why would i want to work if i can just decline to work or if i work underground you know and mm-hmm. um and and they will continue to receive this welfare and In the and economy yeah and so the, the truth is that there's never been an experience of any state-based welfare system that's been able to overcome this this essential uh problem with the calculus mm-hmm. that makes not working a little more v- on the margin valuable uh, dis- there's always disutility associated with labor and so, for a lot of people, I'm not to say, but a lot of people would rather work than not work, rather not work than work, right? Mm-hmm. And especially if they get paid to do it. Uh, so it's it's a it's a major problem. If it were up to me, I would I would abolish all welfare everywhere uh, right away, along with deregulating the economy, getting rid of minimum wages, so we can give everybody a an opportunity.
0: And that's the key. It has to go hand in hand. And I think that this is almost a a, a, a microcosm of the of the bigger problem. They introduced minimum wage laws because they didn't want people to be working for anything less than, well, in Australia nowadays, it's about $17, $18 an hour, which is absolutely insane. Wow. But then you have a situation where that person who's coming off welfare, when they take that job for $16, $17, $18 an hour, then starts losing their welfare that would have amounted to 5 or $10 an hour. And now they're actually still only working for 8 bucks an hour anyway. The very laws that were designed in terms of the difference—they're only gaining about eight bucks an hour for their for their working. The very laws that were designed to create a minimum price a minimum floor uh, have actually created the very thing that they're that they're supposedly trying to stop. And I think, sorry. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's very sad. And it's very true. It's, yeah. it, and it's, it, I think that happens a lot, though, when governments try and get involved in economies and try and manipulate economies. So I, I, I'm, I'm aware that our time is short. So I want to bring this back to really the theme of the entire podcast and, and what we've been talking about. And that is the creation of value. We've talked about welfare and that side of things where really no value is being created. Money's changing hands, but there's no real value being created. We're in a situation now, and I do want to talk about COVID for just a second. We're in a situation now where the global economy has taken a massive hit, largely because so many of us have been forced, whether we like it or not, to stop creating value. We've had to stop working. We've had to stop producing. Uh, for months now, I'm in Victoria, where we're in the, a second round of extremely harsh lockdowns. Our premier is trying to give himself powers to extend the state of emergency indefinitely, which has not been legal up until now. He's trying to give himself the power to do that. So we don't know how long we're going to be in this, and we don't know what's going to be left when we emerge in terms of the economy and and in terms of the jobs and the businesses and so on that existed when all of this started. So... Paint the, what's the optimistic version? What's the way forward where we can perhaps recover from this in the same way that China went from zero to world's biggest economy in 40 years? What would we have to do in, in Western economies, in America, in Australia, in New Zealand,
1: to actually come out of this and come out strong? What we, I mean, what we should have done back, we never, well, speaking of the US case, uh, we never should have locked down in the first place. I mean, the idea that you can mitigate a disease by lockdowns is already uh, crazy. This is a very normal virus. It's very widespread and mostly mild. And it has to come and it has to go. And I'm sorry to reveal that fact to to your listeners, but it's verified by every bit of data from everywhere on the planet Earth that um, our immune systems have evolved al- alongside viruses in a, in a dangerous and delicate ballet for hundreds of thousands of years. And you're uh, and the only way to get rid of a virus and make it less lethal, and and is to incorporate it within the uh, immune systems of of the human beings, which are today stronger than they've ever been because we have more uh, contact with with people from around the world than we ever have been. So, so for Don Andrews and and for Donald Trump and the rest of these people to pursue the basically a medieval style strategy and dealing with a, a, a virus of this sort. Uh, I think it betrays it's sort of a, a outrageous uh, unscientistic, uh, unscientific understanding of viruses, in addition to a complete disregard for people's freedom, dignity, and and the rule of law. Mm. So what you have to have, and it's what should have happened here uh, five months ago, is for the public health authorities and for The government officials, to just take a day off, do a little bit of reading, uh, realize the error of their ways, uh, get on national television and say, you know, I panicked and I was kind of confused, but I've looked at the data now. I see now how this virus is dealt with everywhere in the world. Uh, From what I can see from the data, it doesn't matter if you lock down hard, soft or not at Mm -hmm. all, Uh, the virus comes and the virus goes I will stop abusing your rights and liberties and I will open up everything and let you manage the the virus on your own, depending upon your own perception of your risk assessment. And the Mm -hmm. fact is Mm -hmm. that for people under the age of 70 who are healthy, uh, this virus is almost not a threat at all. And I don't mean just in the United States, but I mean, Mm -hmm. it's true in Wuhan, it's true Mm -hmm. in Israel, it's true in Sweden, it's true in Mm -hmm. Brazil. Everywhere we look at the data, we know this is true. And if you're vulnerable to it, and it, it is, there are some certain populations, percentages of populations that are aged and sick that are vulnerable to it. They need to isolate, and they need to do so voluntarily. But society needs to go on, and 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 we need to recognize that the great epidemiologist who crushed smallpox, uh, what he wrote in 2006, is that the single most important thing you can do in the presence of a new virus without a vaccine is to continue to allow society to function normally, right? Yeah, wow. We need to recognize that. And, and we need finally some one important, significant statesman somewhere in the world to admit that they've done something wrong. And I think if they did that, I think people would be impressed. I really mm-hmm. do. That's impressive. You know, in life when you make mistakes, you try to admit them. And then when you do that, people respect you more. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't respect you if you continue to pretend as if you were right all along, even though everybody knows that it's a disaster. And I would mm. cite in this case, uh, New Zealand, although everybody says that our friend there is very popular. I have my doubts because if you look at the stringency graph, it was extremely stringent and extremely liberal. And now it's one of those, those stringent lockdowns mm. in, in the world, in Auckland today. That is an error that chart looks like a disaster and she needs to admit it and dan andrews needs to admit it Mm -hmm. and your prime minister needs to admit it and trump does Mm -hmm. to it all 50 governors and and even sweden went too far with its uh with its controls and and they have even kind of admitted that they Mm. went too far but they stayed open you know with no mask and anything but, and they have exactly the same curve as everybody else. So we have, we, you know, so we have to, we have to liberalize immediately. And by the way, I don't think it's too late even now. I mean, it should have happened five months ago. Uh, uh, We never should have locked down in the first place, but even at this late stage, if there were a complete liberalization, tomorrow of the world, including reopening of the consulates, reopening mm-hmm. up of travel between states and Australia, including mm-hmm. that. Sorry, Perth, you're going to get this disease. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You cannot protect yourself from Victorians, mm-hmm. all right? Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> we will come and we will find
0: you. That's <laughs> no, just
1: I- true. If, if we liberalized everything, now there's still going to be some, uh, some of those misophobic uh, brainwashing, misophobia is like a, a funny term for fear of diseases, right? So we've mm. got we've got that out there. But So it'll take a little while for people to decompress. But people need to leave their homes, get it back into the theaters, start going back to concerts again. Stop condemning young people for hanging out at the beach, mm. you know? They're a really important way that you develop herd immunity, which is the only way we know how to get, vir- get rid of viruses. Mm-hmm. So we need to, to stop uh, telling people what to do and let people uh, pick up their lives again. And, you know, if that did happen, the very next task would be to repair all the state budgets, uh, sop mm-hmm. up all the extra money that's been created uh, by our central banks. We could start getting back to normal about this time next year Uh, and we might start reversing the damage. I don't think there's permanent damage because this is not a depression. This is a suppression. Very true. Uh, you wouldn't be aware of this, but I actually uh, I
0: released a video back in early April. Once uh, March was really a seminal month, in my opinion, for the, co- the coronavirus in terms of the quality of the information that we had. March was was for me where it really became very clear that we now understood this virus well enough to make some some judgment calls as to what we should do, and. I released a video in early April volunteering to be infected with the coronavirus. Uh, I'm, I'm sub 40 and in good health apart from carrying a little bit more weight than I should uh, not obese, but, but you know, not, not thin either. Um, But besides that, I'm in, I'm in perfectly good health. And, it's my view that the best way to protect the vulnerable, which I think we all agree we need to try and protect the vulnerable as much as we can. The best way to do that is for people like myself to get and recover from the coronavirus as soon as possible so that we actually develop that herd immunity and, and that virus no longer persists amongst our population uh, and therefore more vulnerable people can come back out and, and not be infected. But uh, unfortunately my voice was, uh, it was just a very small one. Some random guy on the internet releasing some crazy video um, and uh, unfortunately, our, our leaders have gone ahead with uh, their wealth-destroying and their value-destroying policies that we've seen, unfortunately. I'm glad, I'm
1: glad to hear you say that. I think more people need to be bold enough to say that. Sumatra Gupta, uh, epidemiologist at Oxford University, had a very interesting observation about this. She said, young people have an obligation to go out there and contribute to herd immunity. They have an obligation. I agree. And, and nations have an obligation to stay open uh, so, that the, so that they t- too can uh, beef up their immune systems and contribute to this herd mm-hmm. immunity. And she, she goes even further. I'm really blown away by this. She said, she said we every, every nation, in order to play its role, it, um, its proper role in part of what she calls the global social contract, must do this. And and she said it's tremendously selfish and even dangerous for nations to pursue these isolated policies where they Mm -hmm. just lock people down, like Australia has. And so she was condemned. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, every every nation to some extent, with the exception of somebody like Belarus and Sweden and a few others, Taiwan never locked down. Um, but every nation, most every other nation has done this. So she considers it an immoral. Mm. policy response yeah now, well I, I look
0: at, at, at an instinctive level I, I tend to agree obviously she's got a lot more expertise than me but uh i certainly identified the same thing in, in april and or in march and then by april uh was coming out with with that and just saying look i think actually that people like myself have a responsibility to get it to recover from it uh yeah. and then to keep working keep this economy going. We, 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 it's, a, it's a double benefit. Number one, we're actually dealing with the virus. And number two, we're keeping the economy going and we're not destroying the value that we're destroying at the moment. That's right. We well, have I've, l- been try- I've been trying to get COVID since February, by the way. So. <laughs> well, you, you, you cleared in before I did. Well done. Um, <laughs> now, we, we have a lie being told to the people of Victoria at the moment. Every, uh, every ad break on television, there's an ad from the Victorian government that tells us that staying apart helps us get through this. I know. And it doesn't. It stops us from getting through this. The way through okay. is through. We have to go through this in there's order even to a, through a it.
1: There was even a jingle that somebody wrote. It was like, there's a song that they play in Australia about staying apart, uh, brings us together, or something mm-hmm. like this. Uh, it's an amazing, uh, utterly ridiculous song. Do you know the song I'm referring
0: to? I, I, look, I've been avoiding television and media quite deliberately uh, <laughs> recently, so I actually can't say that I've heard it, and I hope to keep it that way for as long as possible. But <laughs> uh, look, Jeffrey, thank you so much. You're an incredibly generous man with your time and with your expertise. You're, you're someone who is a regular. I've admired your work on other podcasts and in other contexts before, and I'm so grateful that you've given me your time here today. And uh, I wish you all the very best. And uh, hopefully, we'll see someone, one of those world leaders, will, will listen to this podcast and say, "You know what? That Jeffrey man is right. I should admit that I got this wrong and change direction." That that would be a, a national hero, an international <laughs> yes Nobel uh,
1: Peace Prize for
0: that first person to admit it. Pr- probably not in the the first ten years after it happens. Uh, they'll be they'll be <laughs> castigated, of course, at first. But uh, in due time, I think history would look very kindly on them. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to episode three of Living Value. That was Jeffrey Tucker. He's the editorial director of the American Institute for Economic Research. And you can find out more about him at www.aier.org. That's the American Institute for Economic Research, aier.org. The link is in the show notes. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And in fact, I hope you're enjoying the whole series as much as I've enjoyed making it. And I hope that you're inspired and encouraged by the people that we've met along the way. If you're getting value from this podcast, then please consider going to tophrafield.locals.com and becoming one of my supporters. It's only thanks to my supporters that I can even spend the time to create these podcasts, as well as all the content on my Facebook page and in the videos that I create. So please consider supporting this podcast. And in any case, I hope you'll join me next week for episode four of living value.